0: Ephesians five fifteen through 20. Let me read it for us, and then we'll just walk through. Paul writes, and he says, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, understandably, for the last couple of weeks, as we've walked through Ephesians, Paul has has been saying some things that that haven't been as uh, comfortable to receive. They haven't been as comfortable to receive. The idea of, of sexual immorality, and purity that he talked about in verse three, and bringing these things down through there. Do not become uh, partners with the sons of disobedience, verses six and seven. The fact that we were darkness, verse eight, now he calls us to walk in light. He, and he's been building on this idea, verse 10, trying to discern what is pleasing the Lord. And so he's been trying to produce in us really, a, you might refer to it as a kingdom ethic, a kingdom ethic. This is this understanding that we don't do right things to merit the favor of God. Do you understand that? You don't do right and true and correct things so that God will love you. If that's the life that you've been living, you and I need to have a long conversation. God doesn't love you on the basis of you doing right and true things. You're not going to merit the favor of God by doing more good things than bad things. We walk in, in this relationship, in this kingdom ethic with God on the basis of what our status already is in him. Because Jesus died because we had faith and believe that he died, then he was resurrected, and then his death covered our sins, we in a relationship with God. And in the midst of that relationship, we walk out the realities of it. In the midst of that relationship, we're walking out what it means to be Christ followers. And so understand, and this is critically important, we are not walking out and demonstrating, and God looks at us and says, okay, Ross is faithful, I'll bless him. Carolyn's faithful, I'll bless her. His blessing rests upon us because of the blood of Jesus Christ, amen? And in light of that reality, he calls us to walk out our faith in him in this new kingdom ethic. So look what he says here. Look what he says here in verse 15. He says, look carefully then how you walk. Look carefully then how you walk. And so what he's just been talking about is kind of back to this sexually immoral, the shameful things that we shouldn't address. And so he's giving evidence that there are things around you that are having impact in your life. And so you have the Spirit living in you. You're surrounded by Christians, but you're also surrounded by others in the world, and they're having an impact on your life. The lost people around you are having an impact on your life. And so Paul comes into this passage, and he gives us this really clear statement. Look carefully. Look around yourselves and be careful as you're doing it. (coughs) And this is meant to be done in the midst of this Christian walk. And what he's calling us to is careful inspection of those things around us. Careful inspection of those things around us. And so we're not just haphazardly going about our lives. We're not just haphazardly going about our lives, doing those things that derive in us the most pleasure, that seem the best to us in the moment. But we are offering tremendous care. Are we doing this? Are we doing this? Are Are we submitting ourselves to great care as we walk? Because look what he's calling you to do. He's calling you to walk out the reality of who you are. And so your relationship with Jesus Christ is being displayed in how you walk. He says, you need to walk carefully. You need to walk carefully. Have you ever gone down to a river that has has moss or this, this kind of you know, glean, green, super slippery gel growing on the rocks. And as you walk down there and, and, you, and you see the rock and you go to put your foot upon it, you are carefully looking for the rock that doesn't have moss or algae growing on it, aren't you? And so, because if you step on one that's got a tremendous amount of algae on it, what's going to happen? You're going you're to bust it. You're going to break your tailbone, you're going to end up in the water. People are going to look at you, they're going to laugh at first, and then they're going to figure out whether or not you're hurt, and they're going to pick you back up. If you're not hurt, they're going to laugh some more. (laughs) If you are hurt, they're going to stifle the laugh and get you somewhere to be taken care of. As Christians, we need to give a tremendous amount of care as to how we're walking. Especially today. Especially today. There are so many different ways that we need to exercise care. Some of you, some of you, and, and, and I understand this temptation. You see someone write something on Facebook or something, somebody write something on Twitter, or somebody say something, and you just like, your fingers are like they're burning on fire, and so you're, you're tapping away like this, because nobody does it from a computer anymore. And so you're tapping away like this, just, just w- w- writing this really clever response. You're going to put them in their place, you're going you're gonna to set the world right. You know what care and carefulness would have you do? Man, just sit on it. Send it to two or three friends, people you know that would say to you, this is just supremely stupid. This isn't exercising any type of care. This isn't something you should say. This isn't something you should do. This past week, Valerie and I were at at the Southern Baptist Convention. If you don't know, this is a Southern Baptist church, and we are a part, a network of thousands of other Southern Baptist churches all across the U.S., you, if you're a member of a Southern Baptist church, you're a member with, with about 15 million other Southern Baptists across the U.S. And so we went as representatives from Ridgecrest, and, and while we were there, we heard of this one individual from the state of Texas who, who responded quickly to something he saw on, on Twitter. He was engaging with, with someone on Twitter. And so he just responded quickly and, 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 and just made a statement about the, about the lifestyle that he saw there. One simple statement. Less than 120 characters, right? BuzzFeed picked it up. Forbes picked it up. Within eight hours of him writing this, this thing on the internet had 240,000 views. We're at an unprecedented time in, in the evolution, in the movement of humanity that you and I can send out communication and it can span the entire globe very, very shortly. You need to live out, walk out your Christian life carefully. Not just so that you don't slip into moral failure. Now, I really think that's where we were for the longest time. People would say, look, you just need to, to live things out carefully. And they would go to the men and say, men, you need to walk out things carefully. Because there are these women out there and they are predatorially coming to you. Now, some of you are homely looking brothers. And you heard that and you said, yes, there's somebody that loves me. Other than my wife, I mean, like, not that I don't want to do anything else. I just want to you know, be attractive in other people's eyes. You should have never felt validated in that way. That was never what that was intended to mean. And, but, but that's what we did. And so we were looking for these things of entrapment. We were looking for these ways to, to not slip up, to not make mistakes. Instead of looking at it positively, how can you positively portray the gospel in the way that you live, engage, and walk. And what Paul tells us here is that we need to do it carefully. We need to give careful thought to the way that we are engaging with people, asking this question of ourselves, how does this display faith in Jesus Christ? How does this display the graciousness that is contained in the gospel? When someone comes to you and has a radically different worldview... And they're espousing something that you just find repulsive, repugnant. How are you showing the grace of the gospel to them in that encounter? This is the question we need to be asking. He's not pointing primarily at, at keeping yourself free from moral failure. What he's talking about is being careful because you, friend, are an ambassador for Jesus Christ. You, friend, inasmuch as you claim faith in Christ, are manifesting the gospel when you go out, when you engage with lost people, especially those who have vitriol and hatred towards all things Jesus Christ. Look carefully, then, how you walk. Now, I want you to catch something. I want you to catch something. There's an amazing transformation that's taken place over the whole of the book of Ephesians in terms of this idea of walking. And this is the last place Paul is going to mention it. And so it is incumbent upon us to take a moment and just look at this. And if you don't want to look at all these, you can write these down quickly. These are all the places that Paul has used this idea of walking. In Ephesians 2.2, 2 is the first place he brought it up. He said that we once walked, we once walked, Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We once walked in complete and utter sinfulness. This was all reality. This is all we knew. It was darkness and we liked it. 2, 4, and 5, but God being rich in mercy, he's calling us out of that. two ten. Two ten. he calls us to walk out his workmanship. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared before him. For what expressed in, that we should walk in them. God has laid up for you good works and called you to walk in them, called you to exercise them. Look at 4.1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You are to walk out a worthiness Recognizing the high call of Christianity, the high call of what it is to be a Christian. You're not a Christian, friend, because you limped an aisle and said some rote prayer. You are a Christian because of the supernatural work of God working in your heart. And you're called to walk in that reality, to live a life that gives steady testimony to that truth. 417. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, no longer walk how you used to be. This you that was alive, living dead, walking dead in 2-2, that were walking in ignorance and darkness, you are that person no longer. No longer walk how you used to walk, but walk in reality of who you now are. 5-2. What an amazing statement. 5.1 says, Therefore we imitators of God as beloved children, 5.2, and walk in love. And what is that love? Is Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. We are to walk out, we are to be loving to those we encounter, but we're also to walk in reality of the love received. And this is such a tremendously difficult thing for so many of us to wrap our minds around. And then pulling back at this, this disposition where we feel like we're, we're, we're pulled backwards and pulled forwards. Paul writes again in 5.8 and he says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you're a light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Walk as children of the light. He's, he's calling us to demonstrate what we are. Remember Paul went on to say that the light exposes those things in darkness. The gospel is shining through you. The light of Jesus Christ is using you as a conduit and it is shining through you. And you're not some terrible compact flash light bulb, the little curly Q thing that nobody can see when it's turned on. You're this million candle power Q-beam shining in the midst of the darkness. But it's not because of how good, great, and wonderful you are. It is Jesus Christ shining through you. Allow the gospel to shine through you. Allow the gospel to shine through you. We teach children over and over again the, the silly little song. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Remember that? We get to be adults and we think, oh man, that's just, that's just a kid's song. That's just something I sing to my kids at bedtime. But there's tremendous reality in this. That what Paul calls us to do is live out the implications of the life changed, of the life possessed, of the life owned by Jesus Christ. Allow the light of the gospel to shine through you. Carefully seek out and discover ways where the light of the gospel might have impact in some of the darkest corners in your relationships. This is what he calls us to. Now he's gonna show us three ways to determine whether or not we are walking carefully or not. Look at the first thing he says. He says, you need to walk carefully. And this is what he says. Not as unwise, but as wise. And so he calls us into this this pitting of two things, not as unwise or as wise. And so you look at it and the question that you should be asking yourself, well what does it mean to be unwise? And, And what does it mean to be wise? Now. What Paul is, is putting at here, he's not talking about worldly wisdom. Paul isn't saying that what you need to go and display is that if, if Alex Trebek had you on jeopardy any day of the week, that you would get double jeopardy. I mean, that you would be winning the show, that you would be setting records. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about, about being very good, even at like biblical trivial pursuit, understanding and knowing random facts found in Scripture. These things do not make you wise. The Bible tells us that it is the fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom. What does that mean? Does it mean waking up in the morning before my feet hit the bed that I am shaking and quaking in fear, praying, God, please don't light me on fire when my feet hit the ground? No. It's this understanding of who God is and where I am within his stream of mercy, within his stream of grace. Look what Paul has already told us about wisdom, about wisdom herein the book of Ephesians Ephesians chapter 1 Ephesians chapter 1 verses 8 nine, and 9 he says which he lavished upon us speaking of his grace in all what all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ God has lavished wisdom upon you in Jesus Christ he has given to you tremendous wisdom one seventeen 17 through 19. He says that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you what? A, the spirit of wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. The wisdom of God deals in terms of understanding where you are in the stream of receiving his mercy. When he's talking about this understanding of of what is wise and what is unwise and and how these things work out, we recognize that as a church, we are meant to be displayers of the cosmic wisdom of God. Ephesians 3.10 He says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The wisdom of God should find a happy home in the church of Jesus Christ. The wisdom of God should find a happy home in this place. And how does that happen? It's by you and I calling out to God, recognizing where we are in the stream of his mercy visited upon us. Wisdom is understanding who God is and who you are in light of who he is. There are ethical implications in God's word, right and wrong. And what he's talking about in terms of wisdom isn't just the ability to discern right from wrong, because he's already talked about that. But wisdom in this passage is this ability to understand, to continue to appropriate, appropriate, make good for yourself, where you are in the stream of God's cosmic order. God has laid up good works for you. He calls you to walk in them. God, before the foundations of the world, said that you would be moved in salvation in Jesus Christ. And he calls you to walk in this new reality. Look what he says next. We're to walk carefully. What does that mean? Wise instead of unwise. We're to walk carefully. What does that mean? Verse 16, making the best use of the time making the best use of the time. Now Paul says something very specific in there. He doesn't just want us to be good stewards of our time, although this is certainly important. This is certainly important. The Christians should be some of the most productive people. Why? Because we're working for the good pleasure of our Lord and King, not some boss who signs paychecks for us. And to that end, we should be incredibly diligent and given to any task set before us. Because we're working to show ourselves approved before God, not some boss, not some bureaucrat, not our husband, not our wife, not our children. We're working to please God. Look what he says here. The reason we need to make the best use of our time is because the days are evil. Maybe you don't think that today is evil. Maybe you look at this and say, well, Paul was writing in the midst of church persecution. Paul was writing in the midst of the the Roman heyday. Maybe you look around and you say, you don't think today is evil. I think you probably have a hard time with that in light of the events that transpired this week. That nine of our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ were shot dead in the midst of a Bible study this week. It's an incredibly evil age. You want to know why racism still exists? You want to know why bigotry still exists? You want to know why these things are still manifest in humanity? It's not a gun control issue. It's not an issue of we need more laws, we need to force people to do things. It is a heart issue. The fact of the matter is, friends, that, that just as we were once lost in darkness, so many of the people in our country are still lost in darkness. I heard a statistic this week that two out of every three people in the South does not have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That 96% of the people living in Florida are headed to hell. We don't need to legislate these things. The real hope and dependency for humanity is faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the answer for the evil we find in our society today. We don't need bureaucrats to stand up and give some rousing speech and and, and somehow convince people intelligently that racism is, is an outdated mode, that it is inferior, that it is wrong. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ because you know what the gospel of Jesus Christ says? It says we're all made in the image and the likeness of our God. We are all made in the image and our likeness of our God. So whether you are a man, whether you are a woman, whether you're a white, black, Hispanic, or any shade or color or some combination therein, you are made in the image of God and in his likeness. And we are called to walk out the implications of the gospel in the midst of an evil age that would seem to assign worth on somebody based upon their gender or color or status or socioeconomic background. We simply as Christians do not have that right. We love a Lord who surrendered himself for all with no thought to color, background, or lifestyle. Jesus, quite simply, when he poured out his blood for us, did it with the right understanding of our sinful disposition in our hearts. Not thinking that those of us who would grow up to take white-collar jobs and be productive members of society would somehow be more meritorious more deserving of his sacrifice. In fact, he did it recognizing that we would all shun him, that we would all turn against him. Still, he poured out his love for us and pouring out his blood for us. Paul writes, he says, we need to make the best use of our time because the days are evil. We need to quite simply leverage our jobs and our relationships for the gospel. One of the things we heard this week from the IMB, and I'm so excited about this, is that the International Mission Board, through its president, David Platt, has recognized that, that, that quickly disappearing are the days when our missionary presence is solely met with full-time funded missionaries on the field. And so one of the things they're moving towards is trying to find engineers, doctors, lawyers, retired people, people with a pulse and the ability to put themselves in an international context, to find these people and connect them with strategic mission centers the world over. We need to recognize that the days are evil. We need to make the best use of our time, evaluate those things we want to do and those things God would have us do. 5.10, Ephesians 5.10 said that we need to consider what is most pleasing to God. Some of you are at a retired age. I'm not going to say what age that is. You know how old you are. You have tremendous freedom. Tremendous ability to go and to live and have an impact in countries that others of us don't have the ability to do. For a large number of the men in this church, you work at L3. You have the ability to be in centers of influence and allow the gospel to permeate your conversations in appropriate times. For many of you, moms or, or wives... You find yourself in in situations and scenarios that that I just quite simply can't enter into these conversations with certain people. Why? Either either the lady thinks I'm hitting on her or she just thinks I'm creepy. Neither one of those good. (laughs) Neither one of those good. We need to leverage our relationships. We need to leverage our neighborhoods. We need to leverage our time getting our oil changed. We need to make the best use of our time. This isn't a call to productivity so that we might be better at getting stuff done. This is a call to emulate and display the gospel and its impact in every sphere we find ourselves in. Amen? We need to be careful how we walk. We need to make the best use of our time. And then he goes in and he says, he says, you need to make the best use of your time. Don't be foolish. You need to make the best use of your time. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The will of the Lord is that humanity might cry out to him for salvation. God's desire is that every man, woman, and child would come to know him. And he has set it up, 310, the church displays the manifold wisdom of God. The church is meant to be this beacon, this lighthouse, showing the love of Christ in all of our surrounding community and showing him as we go out and we are the body in all the different places we go. We don't want to be foolish. The fool is the one who says in his heart, there is no God. The fool is the one who says in his heart, God does not matter. The fool is the one who says in his heart, I can do this my way. Don't be foolish. We need to be careful how we walk. We don't want to be foolish. Look what he says here, and this is interesting. And some of you, this is why you came this morning. Verse 18, do not get drunk with wine. It's pretty simple, right? Don't get drunk with wine. Now, it is fruitless. Did you catch that? I didn't until after I said it, so you guys are ahead of me. He says, don't get drunk with wine. And, and, and so really, to a certain degree, it is pointless for us to enter into this tiresome conversation of whether or not the wine in the days of the New Testament had alcohol in it. Like, if he can say, don't get drunk with it, seems to give a pretty good indication that, that it has alcohol in it, right? Don't get drunk on Welch's. You're like, I've been trying, and it's just not happening. <laughs> don't get drunk on load." Now you're like, okay, now I get this. Don't get drunk on Pinot. You're like, I get this. Don't get drunk on Boone's Farm. You're like, whoa, easy. That's insulting. He says, don't get drunk with wine. Now, what he's not entering into is this discussion on the defense and the Christian use of alcohol. If you are a Christian, what scripture says to you in terms of alcohol, real simple, don't get drunk. Don't get drunk. Just don't do it. If you're under 21, what does it say to you? Don't break the law. Like, it's not an issue for you. If I'd been in high school, and, 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 and at the time, we had people come in, and they talk about the devastating effects of alcohol, and they are a plenty. They are a plenty. But really simply, if you're under 21, it doesn't matter for you. You can't drink. It's illegal. Stop. And if you're over 21, and you're getting drunk, Stop. Stop. You're reducing your mental faculty, you're, you're causing damage physically in your body, but the main reason you need to stop is because you can't adequately display the gospel of Jesus Christ in that state. This is what he's calling you to, to a life that is full bore, surrender to Jesus Christ. The reason you don't get drunk is because in that state you can't display the gospel. You just can't do it. Don't be drunk. And he offers this interesting uh, comparison. He says, look, don't be be drunk, don't be filled with spirits, but instead be inspired by the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk. In in essence, what he's saying is, don't give yourself to being led around and directed by alcohol. Because if you drink to the point of intoxication, if you drink to where you're no longer able to make good sense, good rational choices to display the gospel adequately, well, if you drink to the point where you can't do this, what he's saying is, this is your... You're downgrading the gospel. You're taking the gospel for personal liberty and exploitation. And instead, you should be filled with the Spirit. Where one leads you to do unwise things, the other leads you to walk in the wisdom of God. Do you see that comparison that he's making there? He says, don't get drunk with wine. Why? Because that's debauchery. In essence, he's saying this leads to horrible decisions in life. If you've never had an alcoholic in your family, if you've never spent much time with an alcoholic, you quickly recognize that alcoholics don't make good life choices. Alcoholics don't make good life choices. I've got a great grandfather that was an alcoholic. I've got a grandfather that is a struggling alcoholic. Alcoholics, in the midst of being drunk, don't make good choices, they destroy families. They destroy their witness for Jesus Christ. They paint a horrible picture of the gospel. Don't get drunk with wine, that's debauchery. Look at the positive that he spends it to. He says, but instead be be filled with the Spirit. The Christian needs to find themselves being fully dependent upon the Spirit of God. Now recognize, he's not talking about some post-salvation encounter, whereby you're baptized and the Spirit comes upon you. Recognize, back in 113, He was talking about Christ in chapter 1 and verse 13. He says, In him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, what? You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. At the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit seals you unto God. What he's talking about in this is this surrendering of yourself over and over again to the purposes of God, being filled with His Spirit. Now, he's going to talk about it in three specific ways, or really four, but we'll pick that up next week. He says you need to be filled with the Spirit, and he talks about it in terms of addressing, singing, and giving thanks. And then next week, he's going to talk about it in terms of submitting yourself. Look what he says first off. The Christian who is filled with the Spirit is meant to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Some of you, your least favorite time, and this is kind of, we have both signs in this. We have some of you who endure the preaching just to sing more, and we have others of, in, others of you, you endure the preaching just so you can sing. You guys need to get together, buy each other lunch, go Dutch, right? You need to get together and work this out, because what picture does he paint here? He says one of the aspects of the spirit-filled life is addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. No, he's not writing this so that we'll spend countless hours addressing all the different nuances of these words and how they work together. They're meant to be taken as a compartmentalized group. The point there is in this idea of addressing. Addressing one another. That you and I would find ourselves edifying one another in worship. Do you see that? Like the whole point of congregational worship isn't that we all get together, that these guys lead us, that we sing along, they feel encouraged, and, and we just kind of sit there and say, all right, it's almost over. I can sit down. And oh man, that's only the first song. I can sit down. Like two. Oh man, it's the second song. Oh no, back to the chorus. We are still singing the chorus. Oh, this chorus will never end. The point of corporate worship is meant to be in edifying one another. The point of corporate worship and singing together in the whole reason, and we only do this for the Lord's Supper, mainly because Jay told me that, that he gets too much flack when we make you all sit closer together in every other service. But the whole, yeah, mm-hmm. the whole point of sitting close together is you can hear the people singing around you. And that as you know of each other, as you know of the struggles that people are going through in their lives and you know that, that this couple's having a difficult time and this couple just lost a child and there was a miscarriage and, and, and this couple got a divorce and this person's without a job and, and their car wouldn't start this morning. And this person's struggling with ju- drug addiction or pornography addiction or same-sex attraction or whatever it is. Or maybe your kids are just terrible. Or maybe you're just a terrible person and you're really struggling with depression. The important thing is, as we get together and sing beside one another, it's got this uniting effect. We're addressing one another. So it's not just me singing out, making sure my microphone's turned off so nobody hears my voice. We are engaging one another and seeking to build one another up. This is why you'll find when people walk into the service, you can, in the midst of singing, if you give your heart to it, you can find yourself being changed softening your heart, working in you the word as these songs are based on the word of God, preparing us to be ready to sit under teaching together so that he might continue to unite our hearts together. What we do in worship is this idea of addressing one another, edifying one another. It is other people's sinners. And so to really, to a certain degree, it doesn't matter if you come in and say, I really don't like this song, or I don't like this tempo, or, man, what are they doing with the lights today? In worship, you're seeking to edify those around you. You find purpose in that. You find purpose in that. One of the ways that we are filled with the Spirit, or display that, is by addressing one another in these ways. Look what he goes on to say. One of the marks of being filled with the Spirit is singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Some of your voices are so terrible, I'm glad that you can make melody in your heart because you couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. I hear myself singing, so I know that's true of me. But this idea of, of one of the characteristics of being filled with the Spirit is interesting that we are making melody in our heart. And so it doesn't matter how beautiful your voice is, if your heart is not moved towards God, your singing is empty. One of the ways we display this spirit-filled life is in giving this full-bore heart movement that is stirred towards God. What an amazing thing that worship isn't this simple thing. Where we just, we just come in and we're, we're following notes on the page. We follow them up. We follow them down. We're looking for the pauses. We're looking for the break in song. We're singing first, third, and fourth. But worship, worship is this thing that starts because God has given his spirit to us. And it stirs in us this idea and this movement towards building up those around us. It stirs in us and moves in us this idea that it is in our hearts that we are making melody to the Lord. That when God gives his ear to hear the people at Ridgecrest Baptist Church sing. That he doesn't hear the tunes we sing, but he hears our heart cry to him. What a sweet blessing. What a sweet blessing that even on those days when we come in and we are completely and utterly destroyed because of all the horror that has gone out on, on out in the world and in our private and personal lives. That still in that moment, even through tears we are able to make melody in our hearts because of the movement of his spirit stirring in us. Look what he says here last, and this is one of the things that's probably most difficult for us. One of the marks of being filled by the spirit is the ability to give thanks always and for everything. Man, things are going well for you. You're enjoying life. You and your wife are having the best marital relationships you've enjoyed in quite some time, thanks to a sermon we preached three weeks ago. And, yeah. And so these things are are working for you, and you're enjoying those things. You look at it, and you say, glory be, man, I am giving thanks. Amen, God. (laughs) Woo! Let's get that one again. The difficulty is this idea of going in there and giving thanks always and for everything, giving thanks in the midst of turmoil. Giving thanks in the midst of, of, of absolutely horrid things going on in your life. This is beautifully displayed a couple of days ago. This is beautifully displayed a couple of days ago. I don't know if you saw the, the arraignment of, of this guy when, when the families got to speak to him. The man that went into the church in Charleston was standing there and he's hearing from these families. He's hearing these things attributed to these families. And the word over and over again to him is We forgive you. Because of the movement of the Spirit in their hearts, stirring up and producing in them forgiveness for one completely undeserved. Like none of them are looking at this guy and saying, we rejoice that you did this, what they're looking at. And they're giving thanks to God, thanking him, for giving them the ability to endure tremendous difficulty. And because they are so thankful to God, their ability to extend to this person. Forgiveness. It's only the equipping, the moving of the spirit that allows someone to do this. The outside world looks at it, and their response is, we don't have any understanding of this. You'll hear hear commentators say, look, I'm not a religious person. This doesn't make any sense to me. Why would they forgive this horrible person? It's Christians. Everything that our sovereign God brings our way, we look at it and say, thank you. Thank you. Always and in everything. And this is a tremendously difficult thing. I don't say this in some flippant way. I don't say this and just say, because my life is so great, this is so easy to say. In the midst of difficulty is when these things are tested. In the midst of family sickness, in the midst of loss of children, these things are tested. When we fall back and we rest fully, we rest fully upon the upholding work of God's Spirit and it's only because of the work of His Spirit in those times that we are able to Look at God and say, Thank you. Thank you. So, what Paul gives us in Ephesians 5 15 through 20 is this beautiful picture of, of how we walk and what it is to be spirit filled. That as Christians living in this context, that is increasingly moving to be antagonistic towards those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, we have an opportunity to be thankful to God in the midst of difficulty. We have an opportunity to display the gospel. And so this is what he's asking of us. That we're careful how we engage and we're, ins- we're ensuring that we are fully dependent upon him in the movement of his spirit. So even as you move and walk and have conversations with those in your various spheres of influence, do so. Do so not in your own spirit, in your own wisdom, in your own strength, but do so under the full equipping of his spirit. His spirit that has caused you to edify those around you, his spirit that causes you to make melody in your heart even in the midst of tremendous difficulty, and his spirit which gives you the abiding presence and sense of mind that even in tremendous difficulties that you're able to cry out always in everything, thank you. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that our our thanks is directed not at men, not at the church, but our thanks is directed towards you, and it is directed towards you in the name of the one and only Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you because of the transforming power of the gospel that our lives are not as they were. Father, I thank you that because of the transforming power of the gospel that we have been made new, that we're able to walk in light. Father, I thank you for the power of your Spirit. That just as you call us to walk carefully, so too you equip us and infuse us with the strength of your Spirit to do that, to head on that course. And Father, I just pray that you would move in our hearts in this time of application as we begin corporately to turn ourselves upon how how might we apply this? How might we think through this? What implications does this have to my life, my family, my money, my time? God, help us to make rich application of the truth of your scripture to our lives. Father, help us to walk well. Help us to walk in the power of your spirit. And help us to do so under your authority, and together with our other brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.